Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 50. After spending Wednesday as a tourist, Junior began to look for a suitable apartment on Thursday. In spite of his new wealth, he did not intend to pay hotel room rates for an extended period. Currently, the rental market was extremely tight. The first day of his search resulted only in the discovery that he was going to have to pay more than he expected, even for modest quarters. Thursday evening, his third in the hotel, he returned to the lounge for cocktails and another steak. The same tuxedo pianist provided the entertainment. Junior was vigilant. He took note of all those who approached the piano, whether they dropped money in the fishbowl or not. When the pianist eventually launched in as someone to watch over me, he didn't appear to be responding to a request, considering that a few other numbers had been played since the most recent gratuity. The tune was, after all, in his nightly repertoire. A residual tension drained out of Junior. He was somewhat surprised that he had still been concerned about the song. Through the remainder of his dinner, he was entirely future-focused, the past put safely out of mind, until... As Junior was enjoying a postprandial brandy, the pianist took a break, and conversation amongst the customers fell into a lull. When the bar phone rang, though it was muted, he heard it at his table. The modulated electronic burr was similar to the sound of the telephone of Vanadium's cramped study on Sunday night. Junior was transported back to that space, that moment in time. The answer phone. In his mind's eye, he saw the answering machine with uncanny clarity. That curious gadget, sitting atop the scarred pine desk. In reality, it had been a homely device, a mere box. In memory, it seemed ominous, charged with the evil portent of a nuclear bomb. He listened to the message and thought it incomprehensible, of no import. Suddenly, tardy intuition told him that it could not have been any more important to him if it had been dead Naomi calling from beyond the grave to leave testimony for the detective. On that busy night, with Vanadium's corpse in the Studebaker and Victoria's cadaver awaiting a fiery disposal at her house, Drina was too distracted to recognize a pertinence of a message. Now it tormented him from a dark nook in his subconscious. Caesar Zed teaches that every experience in our lives, unto the smallest moment and simplest act, is preserved in memory, including every witless conversation we've ever endured with the worst dullards we've met. For this reason, he wrote a book about why we must never suffer bores and fools, and about how we can be rid of them, offering hundreds of strategies for scouring them from our lives, including homicide, which he claims a favor, though only tongue-in-cheek. Although Zed counsels living in the future, he recognized the need to have full recollection of the past when absolutely needed. One of his favorite techniques for jolting memories loose when the subconscious doubly withholds them is to take a bitterly cold shower while pressing ice against one's genitals, until the desired facts are recalled or hyperthermic collapse ensues. In the glamorous cocktail lounge of this elegant hotel, Junior was necessarily forced to use other Rosette's techniques, and more brandy, to liberate from his subconscious the name of the caller on the answer phone. Max. The caller has said, it's Max. Now the message. Something about a hospital. Someone dying. A cerebral hemorrhage. As Junior struggled to retrieve details from his memory, the pianist returned. The first number of his new set was the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand. Recast at such a slow tempo that it was petting music for narcoleptics. This invasion of British pop, even in disguise, seemed to be a sign that Junior should go. 
In his hotel room once more, he consulted Vanadium's address book, which he had not destroyed. He found a Max, Max Bellini. The address was in San Francisco. This was not good. He had thought that everything about Thomas Vanadium was part of the past. Now, here was this unexpected link to San Francisco, where Junior intended to build his future. Two phone numbers were listed under Bellini's address. The first was labeled work. The second, home. Junior checked his wristwatch. Nine o'clock. Regardless of Bellini's line of work, he was not likely to be on the job at this hour. Nevertheless, Junior decided to dial the work number first, with the hope of getting a recorded message about their business hours. If he could learn the name of the firm employing Bellini, that would be helpful, and it might suggest the man's occupation. The more Junior knew about Bellini before calling him at home, the better. The phone was answered on the third ring. A gruff male voice said, Homicide. For an instant, Junior thought it was an accusation. Hello? said the man on the other end of the line. Who, who is this? Junior inquired. SFPD. Homicide. Sorry, wrong number. He hung up and snatched his hand away from the phone as though it had scorched him. SFPD. San Francisco Police Department. More likely than not, Bellini was a homicide detective, just like Vanadium. Calling him at home wouldn't be a good idea. Now it was imperative that Junior remember every word of the message Bellini had left for his distant colleague in Oregon. Yet the rest of it continued to elude him. Conveniently, each evening when the hotel chambermaid turned down the covers on the bed and placed a foil-wrapped mint on the pillow, she also filled the ice bucket. Grimacing in anticipation of the ordeal to come, Junior carried the bucket into the bathroom. He undressed, turned on the cold water, and stepped into the shower. He stood for a while, hoping this shock would be sufficient to jar loose the needed memories. No luck. Hesitantly, but with the trust that any acolyte must have in his faith, Junior fished a handful of ice cubes from the bucket and pressed them against the two warmest features of his anatomy. A fearsome number of minutes later, shuddering violently and weeping in self-pity, but still short of hyperthermic collapse, he recalled the remaining essentials of the message on the antiphone. Poor kid. Cerebral hemorrhage. Baby survived. He turned off the water, stepped out of the shower, dried himself vigorously, put on two pairs of new undershorts, got into bed, and pulled the covers up to his chin. And brooded. Vanadium at the cemetery, white rose in hand, walking amongst the tombstones to stand beside Junior at Naomi's grave. Junior had asked him whose funeral he had just attended. A friend's daughter. They say she died in a traffic accident down in San Francisco. She was even younger than Naomi. The friend proved to be Reverend White, the daughter, Seraphim. Suspecting that the cause of death might not have been a traffic accident, Vanadium evidently had asked Max Bellini to look into it. Seraphim died, but the baby survived. The simplest of calculations revealed to Junior the Seraphim's pregnancy dated from the torrid evening they shared in the parsonage to the accompaniment of her father's tape rough draft of a sermon. Good Naomi had perished while carrying his baby, and Seraphim had passed away while giving birth to his baby. A great rush of pride warmed Junior's chill cojones. He was a virile man, his seed dependably fertile. This came as no surprise to him. Nevertheless, such abundant confirmation was gratifying. Tempering his elation was a realization that blood provided a spectrum of evidence admissible in court. The authorities had been able to identify him as the father of the baby that died with Naomi. 
If suspicion caused them to pursue the issue, they might be able to pin the fatherhood of Seraphim's child on him as well. Apparently, the minister's daughter hadn't named Junior or made accusations of rape before she succumbed. Otherwise, he'd now be in a cell. And with the girl dead, even if lab tests revealed Junior to be the father of her child, no credible prosecution could be mounted. The dire threat he perceived lay elsewhere. More brooding soon brought understanding. He sat straight up in bed, alarmed. Nearly two weeks ago, in the Spruce Hills Hospital, Junior had been drawn by some strange magnetism to the viewing window at the neonatal care unit. There, transfixed by the newborns, he sank into a slew of fear that threatened to undo him completely. By some sixth sense, he had realized that the mysterious Bartholomew had something to do with babies. Now Junior threw back the covers and sprang out of bed. In double breeze, he restlessly roamed the hotel room. Perhaps he wouldn't have leaped along this chain of conclusions if he had not been an admirer of Caesar Zed. For Zed teaches that too often, society encourages us to dismiss certain insights as illogical, even paranoid, when in fact these insights arise from animal instinct and are the closest thing to unalloyed truth we'll ever know. Bartholomew didn't merely have something to do with babies. Bartholomew was a baby. Seraphim White had come to California to give birth to him in order to spare her parents and their congregation embarrassment. Leaving Spruce Hills, Junior thought he was putting distance between himself and his enigmatic enemy, gaining time to study the county phone directory and to plan his continuing search if that avenue of investigation brought him no success. Instead, he had walked right into his adversary's lair. Babies of unwed mothers, especially a dead unwed mothers, and especially a dead unwed mothers whose fathers were ministers unable to endure public mortification, were routinely put up for adoption. Since Seraphim had given birth here, the baby would be, no doubt already had been, adopted by a San Francisco area family. As Junior paced the hotel room, his fear made way for anger. All he wanted was peace, a chance to grow as a person, an opportunity to improve himself. And now this. The unfairness, the, the, the injustice, it galled him. He seed with a sense of persecution. Traditional logic argued that an infant, no more than two weeks old, could not be a serious threat to a grown man. Junior was not immune to traditional logic, but in this case, he recognized the superior wisdom of Zed's philosophy. His dread of Bartholomew and his gut-level animosity towards a child he had never met defied all reason and exceeded simple paranoia. Therefore, it must be purest, infallible animal instinct. The infant Bartholomew was here in San Francisco. He must be found. He must be dispatched. By the time Junior devised a plan of action to locate the child, he was so high with anger that he was sweating, and he stripped off one of his two pairs of briefs. Chapter 51 Perry's polio widow body did not test the strength of her pallbearers. The minister prayed for her soul, her friends mourned her loss, and the earth received her. Paul Damascus had gotten numerous invitations to dinner. No one thought that he should be alone on this difficult night. Solitude, however, was his preference. He found the sympathy of friends unbearable, a constant reminder that Perry was gone. Having ridden from the church to the cemetery with Hannah, his housekeeper, Paul chose to walk home. The distance between Perry's new bed and her own were only three miles, and the afternoon was mild. 
he no longer had any reason to follow an exercise regimen. For 23 years, he needed to maintain good health in order to meet his responsibilities. But all the responsibilities that mattered to him had been lifted from his shoulders. Walking rather than riding was now nothing more than a matter of habit. And by walking, he could delay his arrival at a house that had grown strange to him. A house in which every noise he made since Monday seemed to echo as though through vast caverns. When he noticed that twilight had come and gone, he realized also that he had walked through Bright Beach, along Pacific Coast Highway, and south into the neighboring town, perhaps ten miles. He had only the vaguest recollections of the journey. This didn't seem strange to him. Among the many things that no longer mattered were the concept of distance and time. He turned around, walked back to Bright Beach, and went home. The house was empty, silent. Hannah worked only days. Nellie Otis, Perry's companion, was not employed here anymore. The living room no longer doubled as sleeping quarters. Perry's hospital bed had been taken away. Paul's bed had been moved to a room upstairs, where, for the past three nights, he had tried to sleep. He went upstairs to change out of his dark blue suit and badly scuffed black shoes. On his nightstand, he found an envelope evidently placed there by Hannah, after she had taken it from his pharmacy smock, which he had given her to launder. The envelope contained a letter about Agnes Lampion that Paul had written to Reverend White in Oregon. He'd never had a chance to read this to Perry, or to benefit from her opinion. Now, as he scanned the lines of his calligraphic handwriting, his words seemed foolish, inappropriate, confused. Although he considered tearing up the letter and throwing it away, he knew that his perceptions were clouded by grief, and that what he had written might seem fine if he reviewed it in a less dark state of mind. He returned the letter to the envelope and put it in the drawer of his nightstand. Also in the drawer was a pistol that he kept for home defense. He stared at it, trying to decide whether to go out downstairs and make a sandwich or kill himself. Paul withdrew the pistol from the drawer. The weapon didn't feel as good to him as guns always felt in the hands of pulp heroes. He feared the suicide was a ticket to hell, and he knew the sinless Perry was not waiting for him in those lower realms. Clinging to the desperate hope of an ultimate reunion, he put the gun away, went to the kitchen, and made a grilled cheese sandwich, cheddar, with dill pickles on the side. Chapter 52 Nolly Wolston, private detective, had the teeth of a god and a face so unfortunate that it argued convincingly against the existence of a benign deity. White as a Viking winter, those magnificent choppers, and as straight as the kernel rose in the corn at Odin's high table. Superb occlusal surfaces, exquisite incisor ledges, bicuspids of textbook formation nestled in perfect alignment between molars and canines. Before Junior had become a physical therapist, he had considered studying to be a dentist. A low tolerance for the stench of halitosis born of gum disease had decided him against dentistry but he could still appreciate a set of teeth as exceptional as these. Nolly's gums were in great shape too. Firm, pink, no sign of recession, snug to the neck of each tooth. This brilliant mouthful was not nature's work alone. With what Nolly must have spent to obtain this smile, some fortunate dentist had kept a mistress in jewelry through her most nubile years. Regrettably, his radiant smile only emphasized, by contrast, the dire shortcomings of the face from which it beamed. Lumpish, pocked, wart-stippled, 
darkened by a permanent beard shadow with a bluish cast. This countenance was beyond the powers of redemption possessed by the best plastic surgeons in the world. Which was no doubt why Nolly applied his resources strictly to dental work. Five days ago, reasoning that an unscrupulous attorney would know how to find an equally unscrupulous private detective, even across state borders, Junior had phoned Simon Magison in Spruce Hills for a confidential recommendation. Apparently, there also existed a brotherhood of the terminally ugly, the members of which sent business to one another. Magison, he of the large head, small ears, and protuberant eyes, had referred Junior to Nolly Wolston. Hunched over his desk, leaned forward conspiratorially, his piggy eyes glittering like those of an ogre discussing his favorite recipe for cooking children, Nolly said, I've been able to confirm your suspicions. Junior had come to the gumshoe four days ago with business that might have made a reputable investigator uncomfortable. He needed to discover whether Sarah from White had given birth at a San Francisco hospital earlier this month and where the baby might be found. Since he wasn't prepared to reveal any relationship to Seraphim, and since he resisted devising a cover story on the assumption that a competent private detective would have once seen through it, his interest in this baby inevitably seemed sinister. Miss White was admitted to St. Mary's late January 5th, said Nolly, with dangerous hypertension, a complication of pregnancy. The moment he had seen the building in which Nolly maintained an office, an aged three-story brick structure in the North Beach District, a seedy strip club occupying the ground floor. Junior knew he had found the bread of Snoop he needed. The detective was at the top of the six flights of narrow stairs, no elevator, at the end of a dreary hallway with worn linoleum and with walls mottled by stains of an origin best left unconsidered. The air smelled of cheap disinfectant, stale cigarette smoke, stale beer, and dead hopes. In the early hours of January 7th, Nolly continued, Miss White died in childbirth, as you figured. The investigator's suite, a minuscule waiting room in a small office, lacked the secretary but surely harbored all manner of vermin. Sitting in the client's chair, across a cigarette-scarred desk from Nolly, Junior heard or imagined that he heard the scurry of tiny rodent feet behind him, and something chewing on paper inside a pair of rust-spotted filing cabinets. Repeatedly, he wiped at the back of his neck or reached down to rub a hand over his ankles, convinced that insects were crawling on him. The girl's baby, said Nolly, was placed with Catholic Family Services for adoption. She's a Baptist. Yes, but it's a Catholic hospital, and they offer this option to all unwed mothers. Doesn't matter what their religion. So where's the kid now? When Nolly sighed and frowned, his lumpish face seemed in danger of sliding off his skull like oatmeal oozing off a spoon. Mr. Kane, much as I regret it, I'm afraid I'm going to have to return half of the retainer you gave me. Huh? Why? By law, adoption records are sealed and so closely guarded that you'd have an easier time acquiring a complete roster to CIA's deep cover agents worldwide than finding this one baby. But you obviously got into the hospital records. No. The information I gave you came from the coroner's office, which issued the death certificate. But even if I got into St. Mary's records, there wouldn't be a hint of where Catholic Family Services placed this baby. Having anticipated a problem of one kind or another, Junior withdrew a packet of crisp new $100 bills from an inside jacket pocket. The bank band still wrapped the stack, and on it was printed $10,000. 
Junior put the money on the desk. Then get into the records of family services. The detective gazed at the cash as longingly as a glutton might stare at a custard pie, as intently as a satyr might ogle a naked blonde. Impossible. Too damn much integrity in their system. You might as well ask me to go to Buckingham Palace and fetch you a pair of the Queen's undies. Junior leaned forward and slid the packet of cash across the desk toward the detective. There's more where this came from. Nolly shook his head, setting a cotillion of warts and moles that danced on his pendulous cheeks. Ask any adoptee who, as an adult, has tried to learn the names of his or her real parents. Easier to drag a freight train up a mountain by your teeth. You have the teeth to do it, Junior thought, but he restrained himself from saying it. This can't be a dead end. It is. From a desk drawer, Nolly withdrew an envelope and put it on top of the offered cash. I'm returning 500 a year thousand retainer. He pushed everything back toward Junior. Why didn't you say it was impossible up front? The detective shrugged. The girl might have had her baby at a third-rate hospital, one with poor control of patient records and a less professional staff. Or the kid might have been placed for adoption through some baby brokerage in it strictly for the money. Then there would have been opportunities to learn something. But as soon as I discovered it was St. Mary's, I knew we were screwed. If records exist, they can be gotten. I'm not a burglar, Mr. Kane. No client has enough money to make me risk prison. Besides, even if you could steal their files, you would probably discover that the baby's identities are coded. And without the code, you'd still be nowhere. This is most incommensurate, Junior said, recalling the word from a vocabulary improvement course without need of eye supply to the genitals. It's what, said the detective, for with the exception of his teeth, he was not a self-improved individual. Inadequate, Junior explained. I know what you mean, Mr. Kane. I'd never turn my back on that much money if there was any damn way I could earn it all. In spite of his dazzle, the detective's smile was nonetheless melancholy. Proof that he was sincere when he said the Seraphim's baby was beyond their reach. When Junior walked the cracked linoleum corridor and descended the six flights of stairs to the street, he discovered that a thin drizzle was falling. The afternoon grew darker even as he turned his face to the sky, and the cold, dripping city, with swaddled Bartholomew somewhere in its concrete folds, appeared not to be a beacon of culture and sophistication anymore, but a forbidding and dangerous empire, as it had never seemed to him before. By comparison, the strip club, neon aglow, theater lights twinkling, looked warm, cozy, welcoming. The sign promised topless dancers. Although Junior had been in San Francisco for over a week, he had not yet sampled this avant-garde art form. He was tempted to go inside. One problem. Nellie Wolston, Quasimodo without a hump, probably repaired to this convenient club after work to down a few beers because this was surely as close as he would ever get to a halfway attractive woman. The detective would think that he and Junior were here for the same reason. To gawk at nearly naked babes and stir up enough images of bobbling breasts to get through the night. And he would not be able to comprehend that for Junior, the attraction was the dance. The intellectual thrill of experiencing a new cultural phenomenon. Frustrated on many levels, Junior hurried to a parking lot one block from the detective's office, where he left his new Chevrolet Impala convertible. This Chinese red machine was even more beautiful when wet with rain than it had looked polished and pristine on the showroom floor. In spite of his dazzling power and comfort, however, the car was not able to lift his spirits as he cruised the hills of the city.
Somewhere along these darkly glistening streets, in these houses and high-rises, clinging to steep slopes awaiting seismic sundering, the boy was sheltered, half-Negro, half-white, full doom to Junior Kane. Chapter 53 Nolly felt a little silly, walking the mean streets of North Beach under a white umbrella with red polka dots. It kept him dry, however, and with Nolly, practical considerations always triumphed over matters of image and style. A forgetful client had left the bumper shoot in the office six months ago. Otherwise, Nolly wouldn't have had any umbrella at all. He was a pretty good detective, but as regarded the minutiae of daily life, he wasn't as organized as he'd like to be. He never remembered to set aside his holy socks for darning, and once he had worn a hat with a bullet hole in for nearly a year before he had last thought to buy a new one. Not many men wore hats these days. Since his teenage years, Nolly had favored a pork pie model. San Francisco was often chilly, and he began losing his hair when still young. The bullet had been fired by a renegade cop who was every bit as lousy a marksman as he was a corrupt scumball. He had been aiming for Nolly's crotch. That happened ten years ago, the first and last time anyone shot at Nolly. The real work of a private eye had nothing in common with the glamorous stuff depicted on television and in books. This was a low-risk profession full of dull routine, as long as you chose your cases wisely, which means staying away from clients like Enoch Kane. Four blocks from his office, on a street more upscale than his own, Nolly came to the Tallman Building. Built in the 1930s, it had an Art Deco flair. The public area featured travertine floors, and a WPA-era mural extolling the machine age brightened the lobby wall. On the fourth floor, at Dr. Clerkle's suite, the hall door stood ajar. Past office hours, the small waiting room was deserted. Three equally modest rooms opened off this lounge. Two housed complete dental units, and the third provided cramped office space shared by the receptionist and the doctor. Had Kathleen Clerkle been a man, she would have enjoyed larger quarters in a newer building in a better part of town. She was more gentle and respectful to patients' comfort than any male dentist Nolly had ever known, but prejudice hampered women in her profession. As Nolly hung his raincoat and his pork pie hat on a rack by the hall door, Kathleen Clerkle appeared in the entrance to the nearest of the two treatment rooms. Are you ready to suffer? I was born human, wasn't I? He sat on the chair with no trepidation. I can do this with just a very little Novocaine, she said, so your mouth won't be numb for dinner. How does it feel to be part of such a historical moment? Lindbergh landing in France was nothing compared to this. She removed a temporary cap from the second bicuspid on the lower left side and replaced it with a porcelain cap that had been delivered by the lab that morning. Nolly liked to watch her hands while she worked. They were slim, graceful, the hands of an adolescent girl. He liked her face, too. She wore no makeup and pulled her brown hair back in a bun. Some might say she was mousy, but the only things mousy that Nolly saw about her were a piquant tilt to her nose and a certain cuteness. Finish, she gave him a mirror so he could admire his new bicuspid cap. After five years of dentistry, paste as it not taxed Nolly's tolerance, Kathleen had done well what nature had done poorly, giving him a perfect bite and a supernatural smile. This final cap was the last of the reconstruction. She loosened her hair and brushed it out, and Nolly took her to dinner at their favorite place, which had the decor of a classy saloon and a bay view suitable for God's table. They came here often enough that the maitre d' greeted them by name, as did their waiter. 
Nolly was, as usual, Nolly to everyone. But here, Kathleen was Miss Wollstone. They ordered martinis, and when Kathleen, perusing a menu, asked her husband what looked good for dinner, he suggested, Oysters? Yeah, you'll need them. Her smile wasn't the least mouse-like. As they savored the icy martinis, she asked about the client, and Nolly said, He bought the story. I won't be seeing him again. The adoption records on Seraphim White's baby weren't sealed by law, because custody of the child was being retained by family. What if he finds out the truth, Kathleen worried. He'll just think I'm an incompetent detective. If he comes around wanting his 500 bucks back, I'll give it to him. A table candle glowed in the amber glass. To Nolly, in this glimmering light, Kathleen's face was more radiant than the flame. A mutual interest in ballroom dancing had resulted in their introduction when each needed a new partner for a foxtrot and swing competition. Nolly had started taking lessons five years before he had met Kathleen. Did the creep finally say why he wants to find this baby, she asked. No, but I'm sure as can be, the kid is better off undiscovered by the likes of him. Why is he so sure it's a boy, she asked. Search me, but I didn't tell him different. The less he knows, the better. I can't figure his motivation, but if you're tracking this guy by a spore, you want to watch for the imprint of cloven hooves. Be careful, Sherlock. He doesn't scare me, Nolly said. Nobody does. But a good pork pie hat isn't cheap. He offered me 10000 bucks to burglarize Catholic family services. So you told him your going rate was twenty. Later, at home in bed, after Nolly proved the value of oysters, he and Kathleen lay holding hands. Following a companionable silence, he said, It's a mystery. What's that? Why you're with me? Kindness, gentleness, humility, strength. That's enough? Silly man. Kane looks like a movie star. Does he have nice teeth? She asked. They're good. Not perfect. So kiss me, Mr. Perfect. Chapter 54 Every mother believes that her baby is breathtakingly beautiful. She will remain unshakably convinced of this, even if she lives to be a centurion, and her child has been harrowed by eight hard decades of gravity and experience. Every mother also believes that her baby is smarter than other babies. Sadly, time and that child's choices in life usually require her to adjust her opinion, as she never will in a matter of physical beauty. Month by month during Barty's first year, Agnes's belief in his exceptional intelligence was only confirmed by his development. By the end of the second month of life, most babies will smile in response to a smile, and they are able to smile spontaneously in the fourth month. Barty was smiling frequently in his second week. In the third month, many babies laugh out loud. But Barty's first laugh came in his sixth week. At the beginning of his third month, instead of at the end of his fifth, he was combining vowels and consonants. Ba ba ba, ga ga ga, la la la, ka ka ka. At the end of his fourth month, instead of in his seventh, he said mama and clearly knew what it meant. He repeated it when he wanted to get her attention. He was able to play peekaboo in his fifth month instead of his eighth, stand while holding on to something in his sixth instead of his eighth. By 11 months, his vocabulary had expanded to 19 words by Agnes's count. An age where even a precocious child usually spoke three or four at most. His first word after mama was papa, which she taught him while showing him pictures of Joey. His third word, pie. 
His name for Edom was Ebom. Maria became Mia. When Bartholomew first said Kajib and held out one hand towards his uncle, Jacob surprised Agnes by crying with happiness. Barty began toddling at 10 months, walking well at 11. By his 12th month, he was toilet trained, and every time that he had to use his colorful little bathroom chair, he proudly and repeatedly announced to everybody, Barty Potty. On January 1st, 1966, five days before Barty's first birthday, Agnes discovered him in his playpen, engaged in unusual toe play. He wasn't simply randomly tickling or tugging on his toes. Between thumb and forefinger, he firmly pinched a little piggy on his left foot, and then one by one pinched his way to the biggest toe. His attention shifted to his right foot, on which he first pinched the big toe before systematically working down to the smallest. Throughout this procedure, Barty appeared solemn and thoughtful. When he had squeezed a tenth toe, he stared at it, brow furrowed. He held one hand in front of his face, studying his fingers. The other hand. He pinched all his toes in the same order as before. And then he pinched them in order again. Agnes had the craziest notion that he was counting them, when at his age, of course, he'd have no concept of numbers. Honey, she said, crouching to peer at him through the vertical slats of the playpen. What are you doing? He smiled and held up one foot. Those are your toes, she said. Toes, he repeated immediately in his sweet piping voice. This was a new word for him. Reaching between the slats, Agnes tickled the pink piggies on his left foot. Toes. Barty giggled. <laughs> toes. You're a good boy, smarty Barty. He pointed at his feet. Toes, 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 toes. A good boy, but not yet a great conversationalist. Raising one hand, wiggling the fingers, he said, Toes, 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 toes. Fingers, she corrected. Toes, 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 toes. Well, perhaps I'm wrong. Five days later, on Barty's birthday morning, when Agnes and Eden were in the kitchen making preparation for the visits that have earned her the affectionate title of Pie Lady, Barty was in his high chair, eating a vanilla wafer lightly dampled with milk. Each time a crumb fell from the cookie, the boy plucked it off the tray and neatly conveyed it to his tongue. Lined on the kitchen table were green grape and apple pies. The thick dome crusts with their deeply fluted edges were the coppery gold of precious coins. Barty pointed at the table. Pie, 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 pie. Not yours, Agnes advised. We got one of our own in the refrigerator. Pie, 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 pie. Barty repeated in the same tone of self-satisfied delight that he had used when announcing Barty pie. No one starts a day with pie, Agnes said. You get pie after dessert. Thrusting his finger toward the table with each repetition of the word, Barty happily insisted, Pie, 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 pie. Edom had turned away from the box of groceries that he was packing. Frowning at the pies, he said, You don't think. Agnes glanced at her brother. Think what? 
couldn't be, said Edom. Pie, 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 pie. Edom removed two of the pies from the table and put them on the counter near the oven. After following his uncle's movements, Barty looked at the table again. Pie, 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 pie. Edom transferred two more pies from table to counter. Thrusting his finger four times at the table, Barty said, Pie, 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 pie. Though her hands were shaking and her knees felt as though they might buckle, Agnes lifted two pies off the table. Jabbing his forefinger at each of the remaining treats, Barty said, Pie, pie. Agnes returned the two that she had lifted off the table. Pie, 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 pie. Barty grinned at her. Amazed, Agnes gaped at her baby. The throat lump that blocked her speech was part pride, part awe, and part fear, though she didn't at once understand why this wonderful precociousness should frighten her. One, two, three, four. Edom took away all the remaining pies. He pointed at Barty and then at the empty table. Barty sighed as though disappointed. No pie. Oh, Lord, Agnes said. Another year, Edom said, and instead of me, Barty can drive the car for you. Her fear, Agnes suddenly realized, arose from her father's often expressed conviction that an attempt to excel at anything was a sin that would one day be grievously punished. All forms of amusement were sinful by his way of thinking, and all those who sought even the simplest entertainment were lost souls. However, those who desired to amuse others were the worst sinners because they were overflowing with pride, striving to shine, eager to make themselves into false gods, to be praised and adored as only God should be adored. Actors, musicians, singers, novelists were doomed to hell by the very acts of creation which, in their egomania, they saw as the equal of their creator's work. Striving to excel at anything, in fact, was a sign of corruption in the soul, whether one wanted to be recognized as a superior carpenter or a car mechanic or a grower of prize roses. Talent, in her father's view, was not a gift from God, but from the devil, meant to distract us from prayer, penitence, and duty. Without excellence, of course, there will be no civilization, no progress, no joy, and Agnes was surprised that this sharp burr of her father's philosophy had stuck deep in her subconscious, prickling and worrying her unnecessarily. She thought that she was entirely clean of his influence. If her beautiful son was to be a prodigy of any kind, she would thank God for his talent and would do anything she could to help him achieve his destiny. She approached the kitchen table and swept her hand across it to emphasize its emptiness. Barty followed the movement of her hand, raised his gaze to her eyes, hesitated, and then said questioningly, No pie? Exactly, she said, beaming at him. Basking in her smile, the boy exclaimed, No pie! No pie, Agnes agreed. She parenthesized his head with her hands and punctuated his sweet face with kisses. The next chapter is a long one, so we're going to end this here. 916-633-1537. Wretched and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify. Uh, leave a review on Podchaser. Uh, you can copy and paste that in Apple Podcasts. And you can copy and paste that into the Good Pods uh, app. Um, you can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the uh, Good Pods app. There's a tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace.
intro and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan, and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.